Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to use trust-based observations to create relationships with teachers, celebrate their strengths, and encourage innovation. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Craig Randall. Welcome to Lesson Impossible's five-part series on educational leadership. In this series of episodes, we'll hear from Anthony Turcala about the nature of the job of school administrator, from Craig Randall about a trust-based model of observation and feedback, from Rolina Valentine about overcoming extreme obstacles, from Joyce Matthews about training teachers and administrators to lead their own professional development, and from Charles Williams on leading through crisis like, for instance, a pandemic. My hope is that by the end of these five episodes, you'll have a clearer idea of what school leaders do, the challenges they face, the connections they make within their schools, and how they grow as professionals. Anytime I've been observed, my administrator has always said, pretend like I'm not here. But as much as we can try to pretend, I, and every student in the class, is acutely aware of the principal in the corner, silently judging me. I never know what to say to the students about the corner full of principal. Do I acknowledge it, breaking the illusion that this is just a regular day? Or do I maintain the illusion, feigning ignorance of the fact that a principal has somehow become lodged in the corner of my room? This is just one of the many, many thought spirals that occur during an observation, which quite frankly means I'm unlikely to be my best teacher self during the observed class. Craig Randall wants to change this model so that observations really are just part of a regular day for teachers and students. His trust-based model aims to lessen the nerves and create space for vulnerability and risk-taking. We spoke in October, and although Tacoma is only an hour away from me, we stayed safe and spoke online over Zencaster. So Craig, thank you so much for joining me and the listeners today. I was wondering if you didn't mind introducing yourself, who you are, and what your role in education is. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Aviva. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, my name is Craig Randall. I am a new author of a book called Trust-Based Observations that came out six weeks ago today. Uh, but before that, I'll say I had a pretty eclectic education career where I started as an elementary school counselor and did that for a number of years with a little bit of middle school counseling in between. And as we often do in schools, I coached on the side and I had an opportunity about seven years in to coach collegiate basketball. And so I took a pretty major detour and did that for seven years. Of course, you're always still in education and teaching at, at the same time. And then about seven years later, my wife and I had always talked about going overseas. And so then we went to an international school job fair and went overseas. And so then we worked overseas for 11 years, I think, as a teacher and then as an assistant principal and principal. And then we came home a couple of years ago and I wrote a book. 
So that's me. And you were in Dubai, correct? I've been in all kinds of uh, Abu Dhabi, and I've been in Warsaw and Korea and Saudi Arabia and Brazil. So the reason that we're talking today is I'm doing a series on school leadership and you have a unique space that you've carved out it for yourself within the discipline of educational leadership, which is really focusing on how administrators can give good feedback to teachers in a way that enriches the relationship and actually leads to change and doesn't, as is kind of a sad state for a lot of teacher stories that I hear lead to a little bit of resentment or a breaking of the relationship. So do you want to maybe talk about why you wanted to focus on this? Sure, sure. I mean, I, I, I'll, I think I'll start out by saying, since you talked about current models, is that actually when I was in the midst of, of writing the book, a, a, a big report came out and it was a, a final report done by the Rand Corporation on the Gates Foundation's seven-year, $200 million effort to improve teaching, student learning outcomes, and graduation rates through the development of basically a more robust evaluation process. And seven years, $200 million, and they found that really there was no sustained improvement, which is not good, but it's good they did a study and were able to find that out. And for me, writing the book, I was sort of like, yes, but only in the sense that it made what I was doing make more sense and, and gave a rationale for us to be willing to try something new and take a risk. Because in education, we know that things can get stuck into a rut and to make change, especially on a big systemic level, can be really challenging. But when we see that something's not working, I think it provides more of an opportunity for that. But moving into why I wanted to do it, I guess, a lot of things. But when I was my first job overseas, I had a stretch where for two years I wasn't observed at all. And I remember feeling so frustrated by that. And I know even here in the States from talking to people, the same kind of thing happens. And they'll maybe just bring the form at the end of the year all filled out without having done any work. And and I'd like being observed. And I liked getting feedback and I liked showing off what I thought I was doing well. And I liked having a chance to improve. And so I think there was some initial frustration with that. And I honestly think though, I, I talked to people and they would sort of agree, but they just sort of accepted that that was just the way it was. And when I started my principal certification program, uh, not too far from both of us at Western Washington University in Bellingham, I met my mentor and I just remember he started talking about you have to be in classes every day, observing teachers and having reflective conversations and supporting them and helping them to get better. And, and that just really resonated. And I remember asking him like, well, how long, how long? And I think sometimes like great teachers, they just do what they do without even realizing they're doing it. I don't think he even really realized. And then he finally said an hour a day. And so without realizing it, that was really the beginning of trust observations with what became three 20 minute observations a day. And then it just kept building from there and we would practice doing observations. So we would bring in little mini 10 minute lessons and take turns teaching. And then another of us would take turns observing. And then we would have a reflective conversation right then as we all watched. And it was driven by two questions, which still anchor trust-based observations today. And they were, what were you doing to help, uh, students learn. And if you had it to do over again, what, if anything, you might you do differently? And it was just so powerful because it, it forces reflection, right, as a, just a mandatory part of practice. 
But then by the end of that course, we just felt like we were ready to go out and take on the world. And so those are really the things that got it started. And then it just different actions and things happened along the time that just it built and built and built from there into what it is now. How did you decide on those two questions? Because, I mean, teachers, we love forms. We love questions. The idea that it can be kind of boiled down to two questions and be really effective is almost the antithesis of verbose teacher language. Yet from what I can see on, on your website and people giving feedback, those two questions seem to encompass everything. I'll say it does do more than that. And so we'll talk about that in just a sec. But I would say, one, that's the core, really. I mean, of what we were just doing in a lesson. I mean, so <laughs> I guess one, one, the real one is that that's what it was taught to me and it just really resonated. But then two, if we think about our teaching and we want reflection, it's like, okay, so what were you doing? What was the pedagogy involved that you were doing to try and help your students learn? And I think learn is not teach, but learn, I think is a key word in that. So that really resonated because it's about the results. And then the reflection on practice by if you had to do over again, and it doesn't mean you necessarily would, but just by having a question that, that sort of mandates that you think about your teaching, and I know most teachers do this anyway, it just gives us a chance to talk about it. And so, and teachers seem to really like it. You know what I think they liked more though than even the words of the questions was that instead of my coming into your room, which is what we do instead of doing it in the principal's office, which still feels like getting in trouble, and is that I'm not sitting down and then telling you how the observation went and telling you what your ratings were on all these things, I'm sitting down and instead of it being about me as the observer, it's about you because I'm asking you a question to start the observation off. And I think in some ways that it just empowers teachers. Like it's, wow, it's about me. And then they feel more free to talk. And so I think that just because it, it develops the relationship, I think that's really the key to it. And I'll add that we've added, uh, we have like an, a PD area of the year. And so there's a question on that. And then we also have professional development communities that are tied to the areas of pedagogy on the observation template and teachers create their annual action research goal and then choose which professional development community to work in, depending on what goal they're doing. And so we ask that every visit too, just to see how that progress is going with the goal and, and if we can provide support too. It's one of those things where I think there is this feeling of nervousness because the person who is evaluating you is your boss. Yeah. But then there's also the kind of pride because you have a lot of professional pride in what you're doing. And when you know that the principal's coming in, you know, you're bringing in your best stuff. And then there's also, you know, that yearning to get better because really being a teacher can be isolating. And I think that to like, what is the best recipe to create an administrator teacher feedback relationship? That's a great question. So even, I mean, so just what you talked about there, like there was an indication that like, we know it's coming ahead of time. And so we want to put on our best teaching. And so one of the things that we do is we want it to, I mean, bottom line, it's about improving teaching and learning. And that's what the principal wants. And that's what the teacher wants. So we want the same things. So how do we create the conditions that give us the best possibility of making that happen? And so we don't do pre-observation conferences because like you said, and it's funny, I received a tweet from somebody last week talking about all the extra preparation they did for their 
for their observation ahead of time. But then that's a hoop jump. We need, both of us know that's not necessarily authentic. And just human nature is if I know something's coming up like that, I'm going to put in a little more ex- effort into it. Even if I am the best teacher on the planet, it's just human nature. And so one area is then making the teaching that we're observing authentic. I think another area is frequency. Like in a standard model, it's once or twice a year that you're that you're doing observations. And so if I see you once first semester and that's it, or once first semester and once second semester, what kind of feedback can I give on improvement between one lesson and then one lesson three or four months later when neither one of us can really remember it? So if we're coming in more frequently, which in trust-based observations, it's just a continuous cycle of 12 observations and reflective conversations a week, then one's going to happen is you're going to feel more comfortable because you're just used to having me more so that some of that nervousness goes away. And then one of the other things in trust-based observations, because it is about creating conditions of comfort where teachers feel safe. We focus on, after we ask those questions, the next step actually is to share strengths that we notice. And they're not rated strengths, they're just what we notice. And so by doing that, I've noticed teachers really, really, they just appreciate hearing that. It's, It's amazing to me how often when we share strengths, Teachers act as if that's never happened to them before. And for many of them, they've flat out said that hasn't happened. And so in the model, actually, when you're new to the model, at minimum, the first three times, you don't offer any suggestions. You just offer, share the strength that you did. And then frequently what ends up happening is people will start to say, okay, 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 what can I get better at? And so then already, you know, that there's a sense of, of trust there. And so time and action. And so one of the things that we always talk about telling teachers and trust-based observations is that if I walk into your class and you're doing something new and it bombs, you can rest assured that the next day when we have a reflective conversation, you're going to get a fist bump because you were taking risks. And so when we can build a relationship of trust where teachers know that's not just words, but that's actual belief, then trust is there. And then when that happens, when it does come time for a suggestion, whether it's mine or your own as a teacher, the willingness to take big risks are going to result in improvement because I know I can fail and I can still be supported to get better. And then also when we're seeing teachers so frequently, if I'm seeing you like on a cycle that's that once 12 a week and I say I've got a staff of 45, then I'm seeing you once a month. We can both remember the last time we talked. And, and so then we can discuss together ways to adjust or tweak. And there's actually in the guys that did clinical supervision model, which started in the 60s, sort of the first formal teacher observation model. And it was based off of like the medical doing the rounds sort of uh, the doctors would do or pre-doctors would do. So when they were doing this model, one of the things that they talked about was an implementation dip. And that's, that's a common practice is that when I try something new and different, things will sometimes get worse before they get better. And like as a former basketball coach, I know like if I adjust someone's shot, oftentimes it will get worse before it gets better. But if I'm there with the, with the player or in this case, the teacher and I can encourage them and give them feedback, they're more likely to persist in what they're going to do to improve. Where if if we're in a traditional model and it's three or four months later, they're more likely to go back into their safe realm of what they were doing before, even if they know it wasn't that successful. I think the the coach analogy is really a strong one and not one that we reach to enough in education. You know, because really that's what a coach is doing is they're constantly observing giving formative feedback always. And then the game is that summative feedback, but it's just a constant 
formative feedback loop. And to have your administrator be thought of as a coach and not as an evaluator, I think is just a complete paradigm shift as well. It's absolutely a paradigm shift. And it's the right thing to do though, because like we've, like that study says is we're not, it's not working. And actually there's a man named Matt O'Leary, who I would say is the predominant researcher on observation and evaluation in the world. And he's done his qualitative research says that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate teachers, they start to play it safe. So it's not hard to see why when we develop a more robust teacher evaluation system, why it's not having any improvement because we're rating you and, and, I mean, no one would argue that anything on Marzano or Danielson's rubrics is is anything other than absolutely good teaching and levels of good teaching. But when you're up to 60-some indicators, how can – no one can master all that anyway. I've seen teachers master, you know, five or six things and be an amazing teacher. And, and so if we can create conditions where we take that part out and just focus on a relationship of trust and and – Really, it's about risk-taking. If we can get to a spot where people are willing to take risks, there will be improvement. So within that trust that you build, do you start to get requests from teachers being like, hey, I'm doing X next week. I'm pretty sure it's going to fail. Can I have you in there just so that I can get some good feedback? That's a great question. I can't say I've specifically had anybody say, I'm pretty sure it's going to fail, but I have definitely had people frequently say, I'm trying something new. Do you, do you mind coming in and watching? And then, of course, we'll always change our schedule to make sure we make that happen for them. And the thing is, it does, it's so rare that something fails. It will something not be ideal the first time, of course, but that's, we build on it. I think it's a really amazing thing for students to see as well, because they're in a situation where they are the same power dynamic where the teacher is their evaluator and they want to impress the teacher. And sometimes they play it safe because they're worried about their grade. But if they see that a teacher is embroiled in this year long session of formative feedback and is trying things and getting support and is okay with it, then they, I think can be more willing to do the same themselves. It's a great observation, Aviva, because if if as a if as a teacher I try something and I fail, and I can share with the kids that it failed, but that's what happens. So when we fail, now we try and work and make adjustments, and so that's what you guys are going to see from me next time. So we're role modeling that for our kids, which then hopefully helps them to be able to do the same thing. And I think even if we think about like you were talking about, it's interesting that you talked about the students playing it safe too, because I hadn't really thought about that before. That's really interesting. But even if you were to contrast what the standard model for ideal teacher f- feedback to students is and contrast that with observer to teacher, the hypocrisy is astounding. Shouldn't it be the same that what our ideal for teachers for students is for observers to teachers? And that's really what trust-based observations is trying to do. And I think it also builds empathy for teachers if they're in this constant trust-based exchange with their leadership. I think that puts them in the mindset of being the person being so-called evaluated. I think they have a lot more grace for their students and perhaps more of a willingness to make it a long-term robust feedback cycle versus, okay, units done, we're moving on. Like, 
as teachers, I think it's so important for us to put ourselves in the shoes of our students, but we don't always get that perfectly replicable experience. And this seems like one that, you know, really would give you that sense of empathy. That's so interesting that you say that, because one of the things that I'll talk about in relation to teachers is, is that if we think about empathy and the job of being observed as a teacher, there's no other job in the world that I know of where the boss comes into their office, as it were, sits down, pulls out a laptop and spends the next 20 minutes to an hour taking notes and then having a conversation the next day about all these indicators. Like, could you imagine doing that at an espresso shop at a Starbucks and and watching that barista, then talking to them about all the different areas of that? And and yet there's the unpredictability of like customers, like there's the unpredictability of of 25 or 30 young minds and how we have to react instantaneously to that on the spot. And so there's no other job that's like that to me in terms of the way the observation process works. So if we as observers can have that empathy for just how vulnerable it is to be observed, even in the best of situations, then I think that's going to help us to be more empathetic and work more constructively with our teachers. And when we do that, we're more likely to see growth. And so By the same token, if as teachers, we can have the same empathy and understanding of how vulnerable that is for us and how vulnerable it is for a student to step out and do something bold or brave, then hopefully that same that same empathy will drive that student to feel more comfortable and safe to take risks themselves. That's a great point. Thank you. So. We've definitely talked about the really great things about observation and the model, and it sounds like it really drives teachers to improve and gives them constructive feedback. Are there still things that you're struggling with in terms of fine-tuning the model to be the best that it can be? I mean, I feel like right now it's pretty comprehensive because we do tie professional development into it as well. I would say, like, to me, the biggest struggle right now is that, like, for the last really 35 years, there's just been an increasing movement for greater accountability, greater accountability, greater accountability in the education system as a whole. And if we can create greater accountability, then we'll improve teaching and learning. And and I think sometimes with some of these projects, if we can create more strict or more robust evaluative rubrics, then at the very least, we can remove the lowest end teachers. I almost think that's been the mindset. And so, and clearly that's not working, but at the same time, legislatures on the state level and sometimes the district level and beyond and national level with no child left beyond have like started to mandate processes and procedures. And so with those mandates, like in, in our state of Washington right now, really you have to use Marzano, Danielson or self 5D. And so if we're talking about something that's fairly transformative in terms of change of the way you do an observation process, I think the biggest obstacle that I'm coming up with right now is how do we work through that? How do we work around that towards ultimately creating a change where we allow people to fully experiment and try different models as opposed to being stuck into these? So that's probably the biggest obstacle right now. So my my best friend is a vice principal And I'm pretty sure she works like 80 to 100 hours a week. And that's like not an exaggeration. I text her at nine o'clock and she's frequently like still at school. And I, and I'm thinking like, she's, there's so much that are on administrators plates. 
have you found it a struggle to be able to sell this to administrators to give up like an hour every day out of putting out fires everywhere to be able to devote to this? So, I mean, certainly we've got different schools with different situations and the behaviors that you have in different situations are going to be more or less. And so, and I'll say just to be in the interest of transparency, it's three visits on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and three reflective conversations on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So on Monday and Friday, it's really an hour. And on Tuesday through Thursday, it's roughly two hours. So that's eight hours a week. But if you were to really look at the time that you have to do when you're doing it the more formal way, and let's just say it's two times a year, and I have to have a pre-conference meeting with the teacher, and we have to take notes on that, and I'm going to have the time after that that I'm going to have to write that up, and then I have to go and I have to have the formal observation, and then I have to go and I have to do all these ratings on that formal observation and prepare for that post-conference meeting, and then have my post-conference meeting, and if you were to compare the time I would really suggest there's not more time involved. And I would even say that because it's a cycle that we're repeating, because it's a more regular routine, I think it's easier to maintain. Has there been, like, what is the biggest teacher resistance been? Like, have teachers mostly been like, yes, thank you, this lessens my anxiety, I'm really enjoying having a close relationship with my administrator, or there's some teachers that are like, get out of my room? (laughs) I think there's a variance. And I would say that whenever people come into this at first, it's new. And so there's going to be some nervousness and anxiety. And that's pretty common. And what I would say is that with almost all teachers within three or four visits, they really realize it's not about my being out to get you or whatever their experiences have been before. This is really about improving teaching and learning and about support. And So as teachers start to feel that, I really, really do think they come along, generally all of them. And I would just say teachers oftentimes that are maybe more veteran and have had a longer career of something that's been more traditional, it will take them longer to really totally believe that. And actually, one of the things that we talk about is using your instinct to guide you. I suggest if you're you're having a, a vibe that if I were to give somebody advice right now, it would be, it wouldn't go over well, then we say wait up to a whole year. By that point in time, then you've shown for a year. But overall, though, I say people generally come along pretty quickly. And then now with coronavirus, where we see a variety of models from hybrid to all online to all in person, there's two thoughts that I have when it comes to to COVID. My first is how can we adapt this to the various methods that are being used? And then my second question is, oh my God, teachers are barely like keeping their head above water. Everyone I talk to is just so overburdened. They're so down on themselves. Like, do you give them a year of just no observations? Do you change the way you observe during this time? Those are both great questions. And so I would say that, one, it'll work in any setting. It'll work whether I'm watching it on a Zoom or like my wife's a new teacher mentor. And so she's she's observing classes as a new teacher mentor, really in a very similar model to trust-based observations regularly and in a positive framework. And, and, and it, it works really well with teachers. And I think one of the reasons it still works well with teachers is because in their model as as the new teacher mentor – they've taken the ratings out of it too. And so that helps the teachers realize that they're more comfortable 
they feel safer, like I'm not being evaluated in comparison to maybe when their principal has come in and, and seen them. So I think that it works. And so, and then in terms of like waiting for a year, this is what I would say is that though I understand that really the reflective conversation is when I have my chance to not just build relationship with you, but check in on you. And so it gives me a chance to offer my support to you specifically in terms of, is there something specific that you need or that I can help you with? And so my belief is that teachers will appreciate that you've given them a little bit of time to just listen, if nothing else. And then sometimes that that's all it takes. So in terms of like offering a suggestion or not, that's, that's a little bit more hit or miss. But I would say this, as long as we're continuing to do observations, when we do observations so frequently, one of the most amazing aspects of it is I get to see brilliant teaching and you get to see who's particularly good at what. So I would argue that in any building, you are going to see teachers doing some amazing things that are highly effective under the circumstances. And so because I'm going in and seeing those things virtually, if it might be that, then that gives me the opportunity then in a reflective conversation to talk with that teacher about a way that we can perhaps share that out through some kind of professional development or hooking a couple of teachers out. So I think it still really, really helps us to, to be able to help our teachers and support them. One of the reasons that I started this podcast is my observation that there were so many amazing things happening in individual classrooms. And unless you really got a chance to like run into someone at the copier or like look over a kid doing another class's homework, you really didn't have a way to to know about it. And so I imagine this is another way for an administrator to really celebrate what's happening in the building, in the staff room? Like, does everybody know that Craig is doing this amazing thing? And maybe you can go talk to him if that's something you're interested. Maybe Craig can do a pro D session. Uh, This seems like a, a really good way to like keep that conversation flowing through the medium of the administrator. It's absolutely true. And so we actually, like on the template that the trust-based observation uses, there's just nine areas and we leave areas out and we realize that, but we've hit nine areas that we think are important key areas. And that allows us to better focus on the actual teaching that's going on. But then tied to teachers have action research, professional development goals each year. You know, everyone sets a big goal for the year. And so those professional development communities, because I've gone around and or whoever's gone around and seen the teaching so much, they knew who know who our in-house experts are in each area. And so then we tap into that to have those teachers lead that area. So then that also provides teachers with a choice of like who they want to go into taught slash facilitated because we're all working together to improve in a certain area. And if you're not in class as much, like in a traditional model, saying somebody once or twice a year, there's no way that you can really experientially know that. So one of the the guests that I had on uh, this season was Jamie Bonato, and we talked about teacher attrition. And one of the factors leading to teacher attrition, especially in the first five years, is really it can almost be boiled down to lack of time, but within that, like a lack of really good reflection time, because it feels like you're constantly doing stuff, throwing stuff at the wall and nothing's really working. And if you just had that time to slow down and reflect and someone guided you through that, you would probably feel a lot better. Has there been any correlation? Are there any studies that show that this type of model lessens teacher attrition because teachers feel really supported by their administrators? 
I like certainly uh, this is so new that there hasn't been, but I look forward to having studies not on it. Anthony Brick, who like runs the Carnegie Foundation for Education now, he wrote a book in 2002 called Trust in Schools. And basically, he just boiled it down to that any kind of improvement or any kind of, and this doesn't necessarily tie to attrition, but when there's trust there, people feel better. And I mean, you think about when people leave jobs, so often it is because whether it's because of the model or whether it's because someone that's a top-down style or my way was the best way, so I want everyone to teach the way that I taught or whatever. Those are the kind of actions that do drive people out of out of the profession. And so I think anytime we can create trust, and like in my wife's district where they do have new teacher mentors, that's an amazing way to get teachers on the right track in a really, really supported way the first year. And one of the goals with that specifically is to eliminate attrition. And so though there haven't been studies on this exactly, I certainly think support and trust will always help people to stay because if I'm supported, then I know I can make mistakes and continue to get better. But when I don't feel that, that frustration goes and goes and goes and you don't have any outlet where you feel like you can come and get support or vent safely then sometimes people will say, well, forget this. I'm going to go do something else. Who do you follow, whether on social media or books? Like, are there authors that you'd recommend? If people are really excited by what you have to say, obviously there's going to be links to your book. Who are other people that you recommend that they look into as well? Well, I certainly think that uh, that Trust in Schools book is an amazing book. I think all of Brene Brown's stuff is, is absolutely amazing with vulnerability and, and working through that. And because and, I think really what we're trying to do is there's a healthy sense of vulnerability, but we're trying to get it to the healthy sense of vulnerability where they're willing to take risks. I think Matt O'Leary's work uh, on observations is really powerful. I think for every teacher in the world, I would recommend buying Parker Palmer's book, which is now over 20 years old, uh, called The Courage to Teach because he just explained so well how difficult it is. He talks, he has this great quote where he talks about, like, I went to school that day, like, God, I've just nailed, I've nailed teaching. And he said, I came home that night wondering if I could find a new profession. And I was frustrated with my kids and I was frustrated with myself. And that's just so normal with teaching. And and to hear somebody articulate that what, I, what every teacher feels is just a normal part of frustration that goes with the job. I think it just gives you strength and comfort in being able to, to carry on and realize it's a moment and I can move past it. So those are some people that really stick out to me off the top of my head. Awesome. Well, Craig, thank you so much for sharing this with me and the listeners today. This was lovely to hear about and seems like a lovely thing to be a part of. Well, thanks for having me, Aviv. I really appreciate the opportunity. episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. More details about this episode, links to resources or people we mentioned, and information in general about the podcast and its mission can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.